Recently, I've been helping my eldest son, Andrew, with his college applications as he applies both to schools in the U.S. and here in the Philippines. Especially in the U.S. college applications, they really want to know the applicant apart from their test scores. I know here in Asia, we tend to focus more on test scores, entrance exams, and grades. But colleges in the U.S. seem to want to know if you are a well-rounded person. What are the extracurricular activities you are involved in? your passions, your record of service to the community, your hobbies, and expressions of leadership. Through the essay questions, they want to know your backstory. What makes you tick? They want to see if you have a compelling life story or if you've had to overcome any hardships. As I've talked to experts in the admissions process, none of them can tell you exactly what is the one factor that an admissions counselor looks for to admit a student into a prestigious university like Harvard or Stanford? It's certainly not just grades or test scores, at least not in the Western world, because there are many cases where a student has gotten a perfect score on their SAT, ace multiple AP and IB college courses while in high school, been class valedictorian, and have a perfect GPA, and yet have been rejected by the likes of MIT, Princeton, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge, and Caltech. Just as we ask the question, what is admissions looking for to get into a prestigious university? What is the criteria needed to be selected to be part of the freshman class? Spiritually, we may be wondering, what is it that God is looking for to choose people to make an impact in this world or simply to use them for His glorious purpose? As I've studied the great men and women of faith in history and in this present world who have made a positive impact in the world in which we live and left a lasting legacy, I notice that they do not all fall into a cookie-cutter mold. Often, they don't come from prestigious families with outstanding pedigrees. They don't necessarily have the best education or the most resources. They're not the firstborns in their families, and they don't have to have the perfect family background. As we begin our new series exploring the life of King Solomon, we will see that it was also the same case for Solomon. Of all the sons of David, Solomon would be the most unlikely candidate to be king and succeed his father. And yet, Solomon was selected by God to become king who would have the honor of building the temple of God in Jerusalem. As we will see in Solomon's life, he lived a colorful and captivating one. We often only remember the story of how he came to be the smartest person in the world, but we may not have read or remembered that he had to outmaneuver his usurper brother, Adonijah, to be king, or what happened when the queen of Sheba visited him, or how he accumulated great wealth. But then somehow, you have a person who was so wise and yet so dumb at the same time to lead in such a way that his united kingdom would split into two after his reign. We want to explore the life of this colorful and complex man as revealed in the Bible so that we can learn some life lessons and principles for how we will not only begin well, but also finish well. In this first message, we want to explore some principles for how God reveals the people He selects and uses. By understanding these guiding principles, hopefully you can be encouraged to know that you can be used by God, all of us, 
and also begin to cultivate a heart and life that God is looking for so that you can be greatly used by God to make an impact in this generation. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we take a look at verses 24 to 25. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 to 25. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. If you're unfamiliar with this story, the background of the story is that King David had seen Bathsheba, a married woman, while she was bathing and lusted after her. He committed adultery with her and orchestrated it that her husband, the righteous Uriah, would be killed and then took her as his wife. When confronted by the prophet Nathan, David was convicted of his sinful actions and asked for God's forgiveness. However, as punishment for his grave sins, the Lord would take the life of the first child of David and Bathsheba. The Bible tells us David cried and pleaded with the Lord that God would spare their child, but there are always consequences for sin, and their first child died. But my friends, God's grace is greater than our sins. The Lord allowed David and Bathsheba to have another child, and this child lived and was called Solomon, meaning peaceful, from the word shalom, which means peace. Perhaps David named his son Solomon because now he knew that because of his genuine confession and contriteness of heart that the Lord had forgiven him of his sin and God was at peace with him. Also, interestingly, through the prophet Nathan, God wanted David to give Solomon another name, Jedidiah, meaning beloved of Yahweh. You see, God wanted both David and his son to know that God loved Solomon. Even though Solomon was the product of a relationship born out of sin, God's grace and forgiveness toward David is greater than his sins. It is clearly stated in verse 24, the Lord loved Solomon. Of course, the Lord loves all people. But in Hebrew, when it is said the Lord loves someone like he loved Jacob in the book of Malachi, it means that God has chosen that person. You see, it would be God's choice that Solomon would succeed David on the throne. Now jump over to 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 5. Look what David says. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 5. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. It is very clear that out of all the sons of David, God wanted Solomon to be the next king of united Israel. David had other sons, and some would also like to be king, as we'll see next week. But God doesn't have to be bound by royal protocol and the customs and traditions of that day to go with the firstborn. The Lord wanted Solomon on the throne as the next king. That's why David made it very clear. It wasn't him. The Lord has chosen Solomon. You know, my friends, in life, it doesn't matter our preference for whom we think is best for the job. What really matters is that it is God's choice, His desire, His will. And we see this all throughout history, how God chooses to use unconventional, unexpected, imperfect, and flawed people to rise to prominence and make an impact. I think of people like Deborah and Ehud. 
Jephthah, whose mother was a prostitute, Joseph, who was a slave, Nehemiah, a cupbearer servant, Paul, a murderer, Peter, who seemingly had anger issues, all expected by people not to be chosen, and yet they were chosen by God in spite of the fact that they were, by worldly standards, imperfect and flawed. God chose to use them greatly. You see, what I want you to understand, when selected by God, is that, number one, this. God uses flawed and imperfect people. God uses flawed and imperfect people. And this truth should give us hope and encouragement to know that God isn't looking for perfect people who have never messed up in their life to do His work, but that He often uses flawed and imperfect people like us. All are eligible to be used greatly by God. So don't think you can't or don't because you don't have the pedigree. If you don't have the perfect backstory, if you've messed up in life, if you're flawed or imperfect as a person, that somehow you're disqualified from being used by God, don't worry. You are the type of person that God is looking to use. Why? Because I believe God uses people who are flawed and imperfect so that when they rise to prominence, they will be more inclined to remember it was not because that they were worthy and thus selected, but that they were chosen only because of the grace of God and will give back God all the glory. I just want to say again that the church, our church, is not for perfect people. We gather here because we are broken, flawed, and imperfect so that we can find spiritual and emotional healing through Jesus and to be a better person as we emulate Jesus Christ. I know coming to church can be hard for some of you, especially if you feel broken and insecure. But don't worry, you are welcomed here at GCCP because we're all broken and imperfect people here. We are works in progress. I came across this blog by Pat Smith titled, Church is Hard, and I resonated with it. She writes, Church is hard for the people walking through the doors, afraid of judgment. Church is hard for the pastor's family under the microscope of an entire body. Church is hard for the prodigal in returning home, broken and battered by the world. Church is hard for the girl who looks like she has it all together, but doesn't. Church is hard for the couple who fought the entire ride to service. Church is hard for the single mom surrounded by couples holding hands and seemingly perfect families. Church is hard for the widow and widower with no invitation to lunch after service. Church is hard for the deacon with an estranged child. Church is hard for the person singing worship songs overwhelmed by the weight of the lyrics. Church is hard for the man insecure in his role as a leader. Church is hard for the wife who longs to be led by a righteous man. Church is hard for the nursery volunteer who desperately longs for a baby to love. Church is hard for the single women and single man praying God brings them a mate. Church is hard for the teenage girl wearing a scarlet letter ashamed of her mistakes. Church is hard for the sinners. Church is hard for me. It's hard because on the outside, it looks all shiny and perfect. Sunday best in behavior and dress. However, underneath those layers, you find a body of imperfect people, carnal souls, selfish motives. But here is the beauty of church. Church isn't a building mentality or expectation. 
Church is a body. It is a group of sinners saved by grace, living in fellowship as saints. Church is a body of believers bound as brothers and sisters by an eternal love. Church is a holy ground where sinners stand as equals before the throne of grace. Church is a refuge for broken hearts and a training ground for mighty warriors. Church is a convergence or is a converging of confrontation and invitation where sin is confronted and hearts are invited to seek restoration. Church is a lesson in faith and trust. Church is a bearer of burdens and a giver of hope. Church is a family. A family coming together, setting aside differences, forgetting past mistakes, rejoicing in the smallest of victories. Church, the body, and the circle of sinners turned saints is where he resides. And if we ask, God is faithful to come. So even on the hard days at church, the days when I'm at odds with a friend, when I've fought with my husband because we were late once again, when I've walked in bearing burdens heavier than my heart can handle, yet masking the pain with a smile on my face, when I've worn a scarlet letter under the microscope, when I've longed for a baby to hold or fought tears as the lyrics were sung, when I've walked back in, afraid and broken after walking away, I'll remember, God has never failed to meet me there at church. My friends, because we are a church full of broken and imperfect people, be excited because God has a sanctuary full of people he can and will use. Now turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, a few chapters back to verses 6 to 10. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 6 to 10. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. In these verses, we find out that while David wanted to build the temple in Jerusalem for the Lord, it was not to be. Because of his past actions in leading the people of Israel in wars, which was also part of God's plan, this special undertaking and privilege would be given to his son Solomon. You see, God had a very special purpose and plan for Solomon to build the temple. God's plans and purposes for Solomon coming to power was different from his plans and purposes for David. That's why, unlike his father, Solomon's background would entail one of peace, not one of war, which was his father's background. Now, it wasn't that David was unworthy to build a temple. It was simply that God had other plans for him and a different one for his son. What we see is that when selected by God, he gives people a special purpose unique to them. And that's our second principle, number two. God gives each person a special and unique life purpose. God gives each person a special and unique life purpose. This is echoed in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when God says each member of the body of Christ has been given a spiritual gift to play a unique role in the church. 
You see, my friends, if you are willing to be used by God, then He has a special and unique purpose for your life. It doesn't have to be one in the world's limelight, but it can be one that makes an impact in the world, albeit silently and unknown. But we don't worry, because while unknown to the world, it is known, your works, to the omniscient God. That's why I love the stories told by Steve Hartman on his show, On the Road, which highlights how ordinary people do extraordinary things away from the spotlight and attention of the world's media, but makes a lasting impact. A story like this. Julie Morgan shares her story about Steve's Pizza in Battle Creek, Michigan. 25 years ago, she writes, we lived in Battle Creek, Michigan. We were young and money was tight. But every payday, my husband would pick up Steve's Pizza for dinner. I can't possibly describe how delicious this pizza is. But several moves, and all these years later, it is still the gold standard, and we've never found a better pizza yet. My husband has frequently critiqued other pizzas as good, but it's no Steve's. We recently planned a weekend getaway to Michigan to celebrate my birthday, Julie writes. We talked about seeing the leaves and the lakeshore, but that was secondary to our planned visit to Steve's Pizza. But instead, I took my husband to the ER where he landed in ICU for five days and where we learned the news that his valiant cancer battle was coming to an end. My husband is home under hospice care, and we are enjoying every minute reminiscing and visiting with family and friends. Unbeknownst to us, my dad contacted Steve's Pizza and spoke to Dalton, a manager there. He told Dalton a little bit about our situation and asked if the shop might send a friendly text or card to us to encourage my husband. Without hesitation, Dalton asked what kind of pizza we wanted and told my father he would bring it to us. By the way, Steve's Pizza usually doesn't deliver. My dad clarified that we were in Indianapolis, at least three and a half hours away from Battle Creek, Michigan. Dalton said he understood that and would leave after he closed the store. And so while my husband and I slept, at 2.30 in the morning, Dalton rolled into our driveway, left the car running, and delivered two extra special pizzas to my waiting family. He told them we were in his prayers and offered to help in any way he could. My dad offered to put him up in a hotel, but he refused and immediately left for the return trip home because he had to work the next day, a drive of seven hours. I'm beyond overwhelmed and humbled by this act of genuine kindness. Dalton brought our family so much joy and the best pizza in the world at a really difficult time. While thank you hardly seems adequate from the bottom of our hearts, thank you, Dalton, from Steve's Pizza in Battle Creek, Michigan, for making your epic middle-of-the-night pizza delivery. We love stories like that, but we wouldn't often hear about things that people like Dalton does. Why? Because they're so insignificant. And yet for the family of Julie and her dying husband, it is those stories, it is those acts of extraordinary kindness by ordinary people that makes an impact. You know, God gives ordinary people a very special and unique purpose to touch the lives in their spheres of influence. You have that purpose that God has put you where you are 
to fulfill His will. My friends, don't compare and desire what others have and the life they live, especially the lives of those on social media. Those are not real lives. The unique crafting of God, of how God made and the life He gives you is unique to you to fulfill His special purpose. So listen, fathers, don't tell your sons they have to be just like you. Mothers, don't tell your daughters they have to be just like you. It's not about you. Challenge them to be like Christ, to follow whatever purpose God calls them to be. You know, people ask me all the time, do you want one of your children to be a pastor? They may be surprised by my answer. I say no. I want what God has planned for them. Would I be thrilled if one of them were called to become a pastor? Sure, I would. But I would be just as thrilled if they were to be deeply devoted Christians as engineers or as teachers. Stop following and wanting the lives of others. Live the story that God has given you. God's story for David was not to build a temple. It was only to make preparations for it. While Solomon's story, as we'll see, is to build the temple. One's was to prepare. The other's was to build. Both were worthwhile tasks, which were God's story for each of their lives. I hope you see my point. My friends, humbly accept and embrace the unique and special role that God has tasked you with and be satisfied in that. You know, a comedian once said, the reasons adults are always asking children what they want to be when they grow up is because they're looking for ideas. Sadly, there are a lot of people living very aimless, unfulfilled, purposeless, unsatisfactory lives because they embrace the other lives that other people have instead of the special and unique purpose God has for them. I'm reminded of the story of a young woman who once consulted with her pastor. She scheduled an appointment and said, Pastor, I cannot stick it out any longer. I'm the only Christian here in my office where I work. I get nothing but taunts and sneers for the way I live my life. It's more than I can bear and stand. I'm going to resign. To which the pastor said to her, will you tell me where lights are placed? The young Christian asked him rather bluntly, Pastor, what is that to do with anything? Never mind, the pastor said. Answer the question. Where are lights placed? She replied, I suppose in dark places. Yes. And that's why you've been put in that office where there's such spiritual darkness and where there is no other Christians to shine for the Lord. It was at that point the young Christian realized for the first time the opportunity that was hers. She felt she could not fail God by allowing her light to go out. And so she went back to the office with renewed determination to let her light shine in that dark corner. Before long, she was the means of leading nine other co-workers to the light of Jesus. My friends, God gives each person a special, unique life purpose. Embrace it. Live it out. Now hop over with me to chapter 28 of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, I read verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father 
and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Here in this verse, we have a one-verse charge from King David to his son Solomon. I love it because this should be the charge every parent gives to their child as they enter into the teenage years or into their adulthood. Note that it has nothing to do with being successful. There's nothing about going out and being successful in the world, earning lots of money, being known by all, or even a charge to get married and have lots of kids. In the assembly of all the people, David says nothing about how to run the country or about building up the military or carrying on his legacy. It shows you the heart of David. The charge was first, note this, to know God. Notice, I said know God. I didn't say know about God. You see, this is a generation where lots of people know about God. They know about the stories of the Bible. You grew up in church. You went to a Christian school. They know his characteristics. They can cite off his attributes and perfections. They know what he can do. We know about God's power of his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. We know his words. But do we have a personal relationship with him? Do we really know him? You know, it's like saying, I know Taylor Swift, or I know Lee Min Ho. Yeah, you know about them, but do you know them personally? Do you have them on speed dial? Do you have their number? That is the difference of knowing someone or knowing about them. As someone said recently to their friend, I know Pastor Stephen, but when the person asked me if I knew them, I said, no, I don't think though I know them. Are they part of our church community? When they dug deeper, the answer was they watch my messages online, and so they claim to know me. But here the charge from David to Solomon is to know God, to abide with him, to know him, the implication, intimately, implying talk to him in prayer, to know his heart by knowing what he's written in his word, to allow what you know about him intellectually to transform your life. The second charge is to serve him with a loyal heart and willing mind, meaning you desire to live your life for God consistently. That is the idea of hesed, the idea of loyal love, a loyal heart. The word loyal in the Hebrew context is the idea of completeness, whole, satisfied. You serve God and do whatever he wants for you to do because in that you are most fully satisfied. You aren't looking for more a new car, a new home, a new companion, a new career. You serve God wherever he has placed you, and you are complete and satisfied because you know that is exactly where God wants you to be. The word willing is the idea of delighting in, having pleasure in, to favor him. You find great delight in serving God. And the reason for this charge to his son is because David knew that God searches the heart of each person and knows whatever you and I are really thinking or feeling. My friends, have this drilled down into your mind this year. You may be able to fool others, but you cannot fool God. David points this out to his son. You have to be genuine and authentic in your walk with God. You can't fake it with God. You can't fake the process. You either love God or not. You either know him or not. You either serve him or not. You either genuinely live for him or not. 
He is really either number one or he's not on the list. My friends, God knows our hearts. He knows if we're really sorry or simply sorry because we were caught. He knows if we really want to come to church and talk to him in prayer or we're just attending church or praying because we think it's good luck for our tests or board exams or to get a business deal or to get out of our problems. He knows the reasons of our hearts. You see, the third truth for being selected by God is this, number three. God looks for a heart that genuinely seeks him. God is looking for a heart that genuinely seeks him. It's all about the heart. It's not necessarily about our outward actions. We can fool people with our actions, but we can't fool God with our heart. Let me set up this scenario for you. You're at a dinner party. There's one last piece of fried chicken or xiaolongbao or pizza or one last piece of chocolate. You really want it, but you're Asian and you don't want to look greedy or inconsiderate. What do you do? Most of us would ask, does anyone want the last piece? Let me ask you this. Do you really mean it? Of course not. You are praying that no one speaks up. No one wants it. And if you find that someone speaks up, you're not very happy because you really wanted it. Whenever I ask that question, my voice betrays me because my wife says I don't ask that question with sincerity. You know, it's so frustrating because often food comes in sixes, like a half dozen chicken wings or six egg tarts, but we're a family of five. So there's always an extra piece. I know I should offer it to my wife first, but I know she doesn't want it. I know I should love my children, especially with two growing boys, and I should offer it to them, but I want it. Those are the challenges of life. Once I jokingly shared this minor problem with one of my close friends, and, I, and he said, Stephen, that's so silly. Just order another six, and you can have 12, and you can have as much as you want. I said, but friend, we'd still have the same problem. There'd now be two extra pieces I have to struggle with wanting instead of just one. Oh, that's why the Bible says, let your yeses be yeses and your noes be no. But the heart betrays. But kidding aside, throughout the ministry of Jesus, his warning is for us not to live like hypocrites, but to live out our lives authentically, not like the Pharisees of his day. You see, either you are either living out the Christian life or not. You can't fake it out through life. God is looking for people with hearts that genuinely seek him. Now turn with me one chapter over to chapter 29. I read verses 1 to 3. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, oaring stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I've set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. Now then look at the prayer of David in front of the assembly in verses 18 and 19 of the same chapter. First Chronicles 29 verses 18 and 19. 
O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build a temple for which I have made provision. In the assembly of the people, David was very frank. He said that Solomon is young and inexperienced. And because the task of building the temple of God was such an important work, and it was for God, not just for men, then King David would prepare all the materials for the temple so that Solomon would have an easier time building the temple, not having to worry about gathering the needed resources. And we find out that David went on to give the best of his own personal wealth to the work of God because of his deep love for God and for God's word. This shows us a few things. First, David is implying that Solomon had to cultivate a teachable heart because he is young and inexperienced. To learn from the experience of his advisors and his own father who had ruled wisely and well for a few decades. Solomon was to be a lifelong learner, recognizing that even as wise and experienced as he would get, he should be always learning from God in his word. I remember when someone finished their graduate studies, their daughter asked him, Dad, what was the most important thing you learned? She was surprised when the father told her, my greatest lesson was learning how much I don't know. I never want to stop learning, he said, and I want to always have a spirit of teachability. It was when Solomon lost that spirit of teachability, as we're going to see, that his life began to decline. Another thing David desired of Solomon was that he had a heart that was available. An available heart is one that humbly accepts the massive project which God planned for him and his father David had prepared for, the building of the temple. To be available for God's purpose requires a humble heart because putting the will of God above yours takes humility. It takes great humility to acknowledge and hold the things of God higher and more important than your own desire and passions and even schedule. That means your plans always gives way to God's plans. To be available accepts the role you are given and understand that God uses others as well. Sometimes they get the limelight and you don't, but it doesn't matter because you don't mind who gets the credit if ultimately God's work is accomplished and he alone gets the glory. An available heart drops everything and says, here am I, use me, send me. I love the lyrics, that wonderful song. We've sung it here. Here am I, send me by Purifoy and Townsend. They write, here am I, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. Unto thee willingly yielded I come. Show the path that I must walk. Compel me then to go. And if I stray, bring back the light of day. For here am I, send me, I pray. What a great way to put it. Yielded I come. It's a heart that says, it's not about me, it's about you, Lord. Is that your perspective every day as you complain about life's problems? Because when we go through life with the perspective of it's about me, you will always have problems in your life. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be available because you're so busy. Yielded I come. 
Is that your prayer every morning? Lord, what do you want? What do you insist on me doing? Do you come yielded in submission? Then Solomon had to cultivate a faithful heart. Essentially, the prayer for Solomon by David was for him to be faithful, to faithfully follow God and do whatever God asked him to do. Faithful means trustworthy, meaning that regardless of the circumstances, you do what you have been called to do to stand in righteousness, even if you are in the minority and not in the majority. To be like Daniel of old, who was faithful until the end of his life, because early on, as a young teenager, he resolved to be faithful to God. Listen carefully. Faithfulness is not a situational decision. It is a lifelong commitment. Faithfulness is not a situational decision. It is a lifelong commitment. I'm reminded of the story. Every time a little boy went to his playmate's house, he found his playmate's grandmother deeply engrossed in reading her Bible. Finally, his curiosity got the better of him and asked his friend, friend, why do you suppose your grandmother reads the Bible so much? His friend said, I'm not sure, but I think it's because she's cramming for her finals. But you know, this little boy is right. To read the Bible, to prepare for life's final exams, to be able to pass. Faithfulness is a lifelong commitment to God. It is not how much head knowledge you have but how well you live it out until the very end. So many people begin well, but they finish badly because they are not faithful. And one decision, one act towards the end of your life can destroy a whole lifetime of achievement only because of faithfulness. Putting it all together, King David was hoping that Solomon would have a teachable, available, and faithful heart. Or if you mix it, mix the order, you have a faithful, available, and teachable heart. In other words, you have a fat heart. As we read through the Bible, we see this type of heart is the heart that God is looking for in the people he chooses to impact the world. And this is our fourth principle. God desires a heart that is faithful available, and teachable. God desires a heart that is faithful, available, and teachable. So my friends, how wonderful it is to know that each of us have an opportunity to be greatly used by God in this lifetime. The truths that we have learned should serve to encourage and to challenge. We are encouraged by the first two principles that deal with how God operates, that God uses flawed and imperfect people that God gives each person a special and unique life purpose, meaning we all can be used by God and have a special purpose unique to us. And the last two principles deal with the type of heart he is looking for, a challenge for us to cultivate a heart that genuinely seeks him and a heart that is faithful, available, and teachable. How exciting that because of God's grace that he uses imperfect people like you and me, to have a special role just for what he's called us to do. And what is important for him is that our heart is rightly aligned with what he desires. So my friends, where is your heart? 
selected by God, all of us, let's all be encouraged and challenged to live for Him. Thank you.